We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. We've been talking about it on the pod for weeks. We've said that it's an issue. We said that it's something that had to be sorted out. Get the key players connecting. Get the star men involved. And that's where the goals are going to come from. We will discuss Francis Coughlin supplying Olivier Giroud and more on this edition of the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, I mean, what more can you say? You finally get Coughlin providing the through balls and Giroud getting on the end of moves, and it bears fruit. And that's what we've been banging on about, and we're going to bang on about it some more with Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Clive. He is on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, indeed. So, yeah, I mean, um, pretty much exactly what I hoped for. Giroud starting up front, Coughlin in the middle. What could go wrong? Um, But it was a day of interest. And, by the way... This is going to be a tough pod to stay on track. We've got to discuss them demolishing a ground that I think is is special to so many of us and that we hold dear in our hearts, um, a place where we routinely win the title. Uh, we have to discuss, unfortunately, West Ham's uh, tummy tickling that they rolled over for uh, at the hands of Liverpool. We got all that and more, but let's start with our game. And it, it was great to go visit the Orcs and condemn them to the fires of hell where they belong. Um, Tim, when you observed the lineup, uh, were you concerned? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was. I was very concerned by uh, the combination of uh, of Coquelin and Giroud. I, I thought at the time. I thought, oh no, this is um, this is Arsene going into his shell. This is because he thinks. Oh, it's Stoke. Stoke are physical. I'm going to put two players who are a bit physical in there to try and cope with it. And I don't think Stoke really are that team anymore, but um, certainly not to the extent that they used to be. And um, yeah, I I thought at the time it it struck me. I'll be completely honest. I thought it was it was kind of a product of fear, um, bringing those two in. I expected you know the odd change here or there. He's not going to keep picking the same 11 for every game I think particularly while we where we had you know a midweek game and a tough game against Everton in a cup final I always thought he'd he'd move things around a bit and we had you know two tough games before that um so I kind of expected to see Ramsey on the bench just because I think he said something in the aftermath about you know looking after one or two players and we know what Ramsey's hamstrings are like and this was going to be another kind of physical game um, and I don't mean physical in the sense of Stoke kicking lumps out of us I mean more in terms of athleticism shall we say 
Um, so I, I, I guess I've kind of expected that. And, you know, maybe he was looking after Welbeck a bit um, in bringing Giroud in. And I don't know, maybe he was thinking, well, Stoke will look to get us on the set pieces. So maybe Giroud's quite handy to have around. So I, I was a little bit concerned. I think I expected to see one of those two. And I think I expected it to be Coquelin. And I guess I was slightly less troubled by Coquelin's presence than Giroud's. Um, because I thought, oh, here we go. We're just going to wallop the ball up to Giroud. And if there's one thing that those Stoke defenders will be completely comfortable with, it's us walloping high balls up to Olivier Giroud. And um, I think he's always, uh, don't get me wrong, most of the team have, but he's always been particularly poor at Stoke, um, I think, in the past. So I, I was quite concerned about seeing him up front. Um, but as it, And the rest of the team, you know, I think pretty much picking itself. Um, at the moment, but I mean, I'm sh- I'm sure we'll get on to this. I mean, sh- you know, Giroud was perfectly fine. We didn't end up just walloping high balls to him um, all the time. I think um, you know we were getting a lot. We've been getting a lot of joy lately, getting our wing backs round onto the back post, and maybe they were they, they were thinking, well, if we're going to put some crosses in, then maybe if we occupy them with Giroud, then you know Nacho coming up on the back post it was a move we we moved we we used quite a few times um so we didn't use Giroud in that way and you know he scored twice but other than that was you know fairly seven out of ten fine um but I mean Francis Coquelin I've never been his biggest fan nor his biggest detractor I think I've always just thought yeah fairly good maybe slightly limited player is good at what he's good at and is bad at what he's bad at but I never expected to hear myself say the sentence that was a complete midfield performance from Francis Coquelin in both the destructive and the creative sense. Um, his passing was excellent. And uh, I think a lot of that is to do with the wing backs. They give us constant width. They allow Alexis and Ozil to come inside and pick up those spaces. And that gives um, the that gives the full backs a choice then. They've either got to come in and follow those guys and leave space for the wing backs, or they've just got to leave them alone. And that just opens up a couple of passing lanes for Xhaka and Coquelin. And I expected Xhaka to avail of that, as he has been in recent weeks. I didn't expect to see Francis Coquelin do that um, in quite such an accomplished fashion. So that was um, that was a lovely surprise, yeah. um, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. And I think um, another thing that's happened that happened in this game, that's happened in the last couple, is that Wenger stopped trying to do that thing where the two midfielders swap where one of them drops back to collect and one of them goes forward. Again, in this game, it was very, very defined roles. Xhaka stayed back, stayed collecting the ball off of those, uh, off the centre-backs. And Coquelin, you know, did the Ramsey thing um, and went forward. And he, he stayed with that. They, those were very, very defined roles. They weren't swapping round. And, um, and that's really good because, again, with the wing-backs and, sorry, with three centre-halves, that gives Petr Cech an extra option. Um, and then what that does, what Stoke constantly had trouble with, was every time the ball was rolled to one of our centre-halves, they had a choice to either drop onto Jack, uh, Granite Jacker or go and mark the wing-back, and they couldn't do both. So there was always a pass on for the centre-half. Um, and when you're, when you're doing that, then it's imperative that you leave Granite Jacker where he's best. And... Um, and that's what we did. So, in the end, you have to say um, his selection was completely justified. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, Coughlin, at least for two-thirds of the game, I thought he faded from the game a little bit in the second half. But he, to, to your point, he, he did have a complete performance. And what worried me going into this game when I saw the lineup is that we would revert from what was working, which was Shaka sitting deeper and keeping the game in front of him and distributing from deep. Um, to Shaka pressing forward more to compensate for the lack of attacking prowess in Coughlin, but we didn't do that, and it allowed Shaka to continue to control the midfield and distribute effectively. He was our leading passer again on the day, and Coughlin aped the Ramsey role fairly effectively. Um, Giroud had a weirder day, I think, in the sense that he popped up with two center-forward poachers' goals, great goals, great movement in the box, and it was about the only two things he did in the game. Um but two very important things. Uh, Tim, I will say your answer was quite as comprehensive as the performance, so thank you for that, as ever. Um, so, look, a big key to this, Clive, was the performance of the wingbacks, and I think we've all known that Nacho Monreal can probably 
feel pretty comfortable that he is the superior option to Gibbs at this point. Um, you know, with all due respect to Kieran Gibbs, he just doesn't have the, the, the game for that role. And the thing that I think a lot of people were worried about was losing Oxley Chamberlain, who had been so dynamic from that position. But this was really Hector Bellerin's best performance in ages for us. He seemed much more uh, confident in his role from right wing back, maybe knowing that Ox was injured and not available, took some of the pressure off him to perform, knowing that you know the job is his now, again, at least for the time being. Um, he seemed to know his spacing and his role a little bit better uh, than he had previously, and he was a lot more effective. Um, for you, was Hector Bellerin one of the keys to the game? Yeah, both wingbacks were. Um, this this system is built on position. I always felt that Arsenal were built on individual talent and individual talent put into a certain formation and we hope they'll thrive, we hope they'll dominate, we hope they'll win their duels. When I look at this system, I just keep thinking position, position, position. When we've got the ball, we make the pitch so much bigger and we're pushing our athletes to the the outside to the pitch and the top end of the pitch and then the bottom end of the pitch. So, okay, we didn't have him today, but, you know, we normally have a running centre-forward in, in Welbeck. We have running wing-backs. And we've got good running centre-backs going backwards. So some of the physical weaknesses that we spoke about earlier in the season, we don't see them as much. There's a nice comfy scarf around the team at the back with the three defenders. And I just think he's giving... Of the team a lot of emotional security and, and Bellerin's he's one of them he's somebody we demand a lot from even when he's 19 and 20 we demand him to be the best attacking fullback in the world and the moment he has a bad game people turn on him well so he got into the premiership team of the year last year as a youngster and his top performances are so high so high potential that we just got to try to breathe and remember how good he actually can be and like I say, I never doubted him for one second. Never at all. And this formation suits him. And you know my view on the Ox. I don't think, I think he can do that job. I don't think he's number one position. I think Bellerin is more suited. And he's a different player. He's not so much of a dribbler. He's got raw pace. He plays wall passes and he's got good timings of runs. If anything, his game mirrors Theo Walcott more than Oxay Chamberlain. And But obviously, he's more defensive than Theo Walcott. But he's given us that dynamic out to in run timing first time low crosses um I, his crossing accuracy will only improve as he gets to more positions more often and monreal on the other side I, I just think they dictate i think when we first saw monreal play wing back people said he couldn't do it we should get gibbs there but he just fixed his style position and sanchez has fixed his and now monreal is, is a major threat he he's been very cute at running the offside line and uh, his delivery is very, very calm in the last in the last part of the pitch. Mm. So um, we're seeing a, a positional-based system rather than a talent-based system. And it, we're seeing a system that suits the majority of the players and it makes them feel comfortable. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really good to see. And I'm, you know, obviously Tim's travelled the whole country the whole season. I bet he's actually quite happy with that performance, but also doubly frustrated that we didn't get this level of um, dexterity and system to suit the team much sooner so we can have a lot more to shout about at the end of the season. The story of the season for me is uh, Antonio Conte making the adjustment he had to make after we beat them and us failing yeah. to make our adjustment when we needed to make it for far too long. Um, Arsene Wenger is fairly conservative. He just is. He likes to go with what's safe and what he knows, and I, I think it took a lot for him. I don't think it did. It clearly took a lot for him to make this change, and it just came too late. Um, let me ask you something, though, Clive. I mean, without wanting to piss on our chips or whatever it is you say, is that a thing? Is that a thing you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Awesome. I'm getting it. I'm getting the hang of this shit. Um, without wanting to do that thing I just said, uh, is it possible that we have seen some good performances in this system as a result of teams not contesting midfield, obviously we saw what Spurs did. They ripped us to shreds. I was surprised at how passive Stoke were, um, and they really gave us the midfield. And I think in any formation, we can kind of thrive when that's the case. Uh, do you think there's some of it that's down to, to being given the middle of the pitch? Yeah, but then you've got to ask yourself. I do. I, I think you're right. Then ask yourself why. Why are we getting 
to space in the middle of the pitch. And it's due to the size of the pitch that we're that we're making. Because we are pushing our defenders are dropping deep point. when we have the ball and they're spreading wide. So you've got to go and mark them. And then, as Tim alluded to, what that means is you, you, you can't cut off a lane to Shaka. You can't cut off the lane to one of the ball-playing centre-backs. You can't cut off the lane to one of the wing-backs. And then if you do manage to do all that, Erzl and Sanchez come deep and they offer an option. So what he's doing is, he's, he's, he's great for Cockerland, he's, he's not very good at build-up play. He's thinking, brilliant, I can just focus on facing the right direction, getting the ball, moving it sharply, following my pass, and going into a tackle, getting it back, and just driving forward. Right? So that's great for him, because all his weaknesses on build-up play and receive the ball in a half-turn, they've gone. Shaka's thinking, well, if they press me, that's fine, but it's going to go to Bellerin, it's going to go to Ozil, so press me if you want but we can get out from here. And then we've got holding, driving through into the midfield, running straight past Shaka and then passing the ball anyway. So that's no problem. So Shaka's thinking, well, no, if I stay here, eventually they're going to go and, and go and try to mark holding and I'll get the ball and I'll be able to play. So what we're creating is a, is an, a no-pressure environment. Now Spurs were, what happened at Spurs? I thought mentally we didn't approach it correctly. I thought we were intimidated by them. But also, I, I'm a big, I have a big thing that that pitch is a lot smaller. We didn't quite have the ability to stretch the pitch in the same way. And I think we were, I think we were, we got pressed. We got pressed. But I don't think that happens at, at most grounds. I think Spurs are a unique environment. You say it doesn't happen at Wembley, so I'm looking forward to that. But I think it's down, again, position, position, position. It's down to the system. It's down to the area of the pitch that we're covering. And that's giving passing lanes and passing options to more players, which means we can't be targeted like we were before. When Cochrane and Shaka play, we all know what happened. Everyone targeted Shaka and um, Cochrane sitting there like a decoy no one was falling for and we criticised him until he got out of the team. So it uh, just shows you what systems could do, how it can revitalise people. Yeah, that's, that's entirely true. And I, I think... You know, the one thing that this system definitely has done is it is shocking how easily the ball over the top was exploiting space uh, in our back four. When our fullbacks were pushed up, there were people were bypassing our midfield with long balls, and if they had any kind of pace up front, there were two-on-ones and two-on-twos and three-on-twos. I mean, it was incredible how quickly we were being counterattacked and how effectively. And I think not, not entirely, but almost entirely, that route to scoring on us has been limited and shut down by the back three and and that i think more than anything has allowed us to play more of our game up the pitch because we are not as vulnerable at the back to the the long ball over the top tim you know there's no question that alexis sanchez can drive people nuts but once again we see just the kind of exceptional talent that he has and i i think he's really put his stamp on on this team as being its best player and at least from an attacking standpoint, the leader of of the attacking part of, of Arsenal right now. And the pass he plays to Mesut Ozil is definitely the best I've seen this season. It's, it's as good as it can be. Um, you probably had a, a better bird's eye view um, from, from the ground. What did you think of, of the build-up to that goal and just the pass that Alexis delivers to Mesut? Well, the build-up to the goal, I've, I've watched it back today because um, I was writing my column for the week this evening, so um, written about this a little bit. What's interesting, you watch the 20 seconds before, what we were saying about the pitch being wider, Bellerin and Monreal are both involved in the build-up and they they get the ball basically on the white line, um, the pair of them. And uh, what this means, I think, so... The last couple of games, I think Alexis has really started to get this in inside left position. Um, it really started at Man U, where you know he he was just drifting in, and this is exactly what Chelsea have done with Hazard. They've said, you know what, don't bother being a left winger because being a left winger comes with defensive responsibility. Leave that to the wing back, and we'll just sit you 15 yards in from the touchline. So this whole thing, you know, is Alexis better on the wing or better up front? I mean, this is a compromise, really, putting him in that inside left so that he can score and create goals. And hey, presto, look at the goal he created and the goal he scored. Look at where he picks the ball up inside, once on the inside left, once on the inside right in that kind of half space. 
And on both occasions, he gave Stoke something to think about because it's exactly the same as what Chelsea have done with Hazard. When he picks the ball up in that in that area, the fullback's got a, a decision to make. He goes, do I go with Alexis but then leave the space behind me wide open for the wing back or do I just leave him? And what you see for the first goal is that all of those Stoke players, there's about five of them between Sanchez and Ozil, but they all freeze because they don't know what to do. They don't know whether to go and engage him, whether to stand off, and they will end up doing neither. And then for Alexis's goal, something very similar happens. He picks the ball up again in that space and he just runs and none of them know what to do. They don't know whether to engage him or, that, or stand off. And basically, they tried both approaches and neither of them worked. Um, so that he, him picking up that kind of little space there. And what's interesting is that, you know, we've spoken a lot this season about getting Ozil and Sanchez closer together. And I think having them both in that kind of inside right, inside left, you know, it should do that on paper. I don't think we've seen that much of it until the last kind of couple of games. Because what would have happened a couple of weeks ago because Ozil and Alexis actually exchange passes, so Ozil brings the ball to Alexis and then runs off. Now, a month ago, Alexis would have been 10 yards nearer over towards the touchline. So before he gets in a position to play a pass like that, he's got to dribble in field 10 yards and probably beat two Stoke players and then turn himself round. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to work out. It's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But instead, he picks the ball up you know, 15 yards inside between the fullback and centre-half kind of space. And, you know, that's that's a much more advantageous place for him to pick the ball up. He's in the left half um, space know, instead of the left wing. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, that puts him slight... And because, you know, Wenger's been talking up his creative um, abilities this season, he obviously doesn't want to lose that. You know, I still think there's a debate to be had is he even better another 15 yards in in between the goalposts? But, um, you know, Arson talks has talked a lot in recent months, actually, about how he's really developed the creative side of his game. And that pass was just absolutely outstanding. Um, you know, you watch it, it's, it's like, um, you know, it's like a snooker ball travelling a- across the table. It's just through, it's absolutely threaded. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful ball. And, you know, the first touch from Ozil as well makes it because I think pretty much any other player probably gets that stuck under their feet. Under their feet, and um, well, the ir- the irony, Tim, doesn't is doesn't end up in a goal. We we saw just the other day when uh, a ball was played to him on the right channel when it came to his right foot, he did get it stuck under his feet a little, and this was played to the instep mm. of his left foot, and you see the difference. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And. Um, you know that that touch really makes the pass. Um, you know, not not quite the same. You know, as the Giroud Scorpion kind of goal, where, where actually when you look at it, it's a slightly wayward cross from Alexis. But you know, Özil still turns that into a good pass. First of all, with the run, and it shows you that he really trusted Alexis to play that ball because he knew. You know. He, if, you, if you're Ozil on that pitch and you look forward when you're making that run, there's still four Stoke players to travel past. So you've got to really trust that the guy on the ball is going to is going to A, C you and B, be able to deliver. Um, so that shows you the connection they have and the trust they have. And uh, it was it was just an absolutely fantastic piece of play from beginning to end. Yeah. You, you can't get upset at a player losing the ball 15, 20 times a game if two or three times a game, that's what he's able to do if you give him exactly. the freedom to try those things. And I just think, you know, for all the great tactical explanation you described, Tim, of how the system and how the spacing and how the position of Alexis changes the angle of the attack and mm. his passing lane and all of that, None of that stuff is something we're discussing right now if he doesn't have the absolute stupendous quality to play that ball. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's, uh, I, I always compare him with Suarez because Suarez, when you watch him over 90 minutes, he loses the ball a lot, not with passes like Alexis does. And don't get me wrong, I'm not airbrushing the fact that sometimes he really screws up very simple passes, but I'm all right with the ones that are through balls that don't quite make it for the same reason Barcelona are all right with Suarez trying to dribble past three players and messing it up seven or eight times a game because they know he'll get through once. 
I, I mean, and sorry, it's the same with yeah. Alexis. Well, I was just going to say, name me three center forwards in all of world football who can play as effectively and as brilliantly from the center forward position and then can drop 20 yards deeper and play out on the wing and be a facilitator and play essentially in advanced midfield and be just as effective or almost as effective, right? I mean, there aren't a lot of players. If you put most center forwards into the midfield, their passing is going to be suspect. Um, Alexis is not Mikel Arteta, you know? <laughs> so yeah. I just think it's absolutely stupendous player and, and so enjoyable to watch. Now, I, I think Clive... You know, he gets hurt. He's asking to come off. The manager leaves him on. It looks like a stroke of genius. We've seen this go really, really badly for Arsene Wenger in other scenarios. Um, how concerned were you when he left him on? Uh, and ultimately, I mean, I, I know he scores the goal. What was your take on how that whole situation played out? Yeah, I suppose when, you know, when he does put his hand up to come off, there's a couple of things go through your mind. One that he never does that, exactly. unless he's either unless he's either near his near his deathbed or he's about to leave the club, right? <laughs> so that's the two things that went through your mind. And and then you're thinking about the future games coming up, and you're thinking, okay, we need to get these points on on Tuesday and the weekend, and we've got a cup final coming up. But then the ball appears, right? So Bellerin does a little, little move with him, and he appears in in space in the. Uh, in the, I call it the Pedro space, just so everyone recognises where that is. And then he doesn't mess about. He just concentrates on contact and concentrates on the white sticks. And he hits it hard and low. And when you do that quickly, goalkeepers don't set themselves. Defenders don't quite get the blocking. It goes through legs. And you, sometimes Frank Lampard style, he could end up in the goal. And um, and it was a, it was a crucial moment because uh, Stoke were getting a bit lippy. They were trying to bring it back to... To the early 2000s, when they tried to, you know, up the physicality piece, and I thought we withstood that very, very well, um, and and that just shut them up, and that just completely killed them. And um, yeah, he's the best player in the league, you know. If you look at his numbers compared to Hazard's numbers, he's he, he's way ahead. He's got double figures goals, and he's 20 goals. He's got double figure assists. I think his influence on our goal tally has been huge, and. It's the responsibility of the manager to create a system that allows him time to score that first goal, which he always scores. He scores more goals away from home than anybody else. And, it's, and even though he's an individual player, one of the other things about this system, Elliot, is if you if you lay out your own mind and you close your eyes, what you can do is you can develop profile for, of player for each position. You know what type of player we need for a wing-back. You know what type of player we need in centre midfield. We can debate one of those positions, but we definitely need one playmaker. We definitely need somebody with legs who can connect. The wing-backs pick themselves. The two forwards behind as a singular forward. They need to be number 10 likes or second striker like. They have a level of dexterity, mobility and agility. And your forward option, you could choose. You can go Giroud or you can go a, a speedster. We've got we've got one of each. We probably need one more who can do both jobs. And that's probably the final piece. But what you have there is a system, rather than built on individual characteristics and talent, is now built on positional and player profile. And what that means is when you change your talent, you can repeat the system. You can repeat the play. And I hope from a technical standpoint that also really look at this formation and really decide to stay with it because much like um, our manager going who was our number one attraction for key players and key superstars that's not as that's not as attractive as it once was so we need a system that's repeatable sustainable that we can buy profile certain profile players also we can repeat it and i think this system looks after us on the technical side, the emotional side, and uh, looking forward to the sustainability side. Yeah, and, and certainly addresses the sort of weakness that has been perpetually problematic under Arsene Wenger, at least for the last decade, which is our defensive liabilities. I think this at least shores up some of the defensive side, not all of it, as we've seen. Yeah. But um, I'll stay with you just for a second, Clive, because this is something Tim would probably know nothing about. And uh, there are a few topics like that, but this is one because I'm going to address the uh, co-commentator on the television. So, Tim, obviously not something that you experience or at least experience firsthand. But Pleat was, I mean, I don't know what he was. He, he was like a, 
a bleeding goat on TV. I don't know what he was on about, but it really impacted my ability to enjoy the game. I don't usually get bothered by the co-commentators, but you know, you've got Crouch who scores with his hand, like just flatly denies that it was with his hand. Then when he's told basically it was with his hand, he says it's clever. And then he says that, I don't know if you know this, Tim, but he said that holding should have been given a red card. For the, I heard about that. Wow. Yeah. For the challenge on Arnautovic. I don't know. Did, did you get plead as co-commentary where you were, Clive? No, we don't get plead, but I grew up in an area called, I grew up in an area called Luton in, in England, and David Pleat is one of Luton's ex-managers, so I actually know him. Okay. <laughs> actually know him so quite is, well. is he as big a see you next Tuesday as he as he is on television? Yeah, well, he's a big Tottenham man, right? He, yeah, uh, he I know. found them. He found them Delhi Alley at Milton Keynes, which is just another ten miles from my house. So, um, yeah, yeah. Where, know, where were you on that one, well. Clive? Where were you? Well, That's a miss. he was well known. <laughs> oh, I, I knew about him. I was well known, and um, Arsenal didn't fancy paying the money. Right, new to Liverpool. Add so him to the go. list of guys we almost signed. Um, well, all right. So then we don't need to get into the pleat thing, but I just there is definitely something when you listen to some of these uh, English co-commentators who have it in for for Arsenal at some level, and, and maybe it's a nationality thing, but you can't even say that because Holding's a young Englishman who we wanted sent off, and Crouch, you know, I mean, he's some kind of species. We're still not clear what it is. Um, but, but Tim, that's handball, right? I mean, is, is this yeah. an instance where we have to look at it and say, all right, if everybody in the stadium and everybody watching at home can know that's handball, we have to introduce the technology to allow these kinds of things to be to be cleared up for the referee. It's not It's not fair to the referee that he has to look like an idiot because in a split second he didn't see something that we can know 10 seconds later with the benefit of video technology. Yeah, I um, I, I was at the other end, so I, I didn't see it at all, um, I must say. I, I'm, I can I perfectly understand why Mike Dean didn't see it. You know, his, his hand was basic. I mean, I don't even know why he handballed it because the ball was going straight onto his head. And uh, it's, it was a really weird reaction from him to actually like put his hand on his forehead at the time because his head was was going to get there. Um, I think the linesman should have seen it. I, I personally, I still have doubts about um, the use of video technology in football. Um, I'm, I, I think maybe in that situation, yeah, it it would probably be fine. Um, I think there are lots of other situations where it probably wouldn't be um, and it would kind of spoil things a bit as a spectacle, particularly when you're inside the stadium and it's very difficult to know what's going on while it's going on. Um, so I, I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm happy for it to be trialled, but I still have some doubts that it's applicable to kind of every situation, really. And I kind of feel like it will be a slippery slope. Um, I, I listened to a a good podcast last week it was a uh, grant wall um who elliot i'm sure you'll know very well um yes kind of top american uh, soccer journalist interviewed howard webb and howard webb's been given a job in the states um to kind of oversee uh, the implementation of, of video evidence and and it's a really good thorough interview i, I recommend it um and it's, it's about an hour long and howard webb kind of really explains gets into the meat of you know when it will be used how it will be used when it will be trialed and things like that and um but the, the kind of slippery slope i can see is you know this is this is really a product of, of a little bit of you know of, of outrage and grr, they gave a goal against my team and I, don't, I just don't think this will stop that because it might reduce some decisions even if you accept you know that it might take some of the flow out of the game and things like that but I, I just think it's it's quite a slippery slope because of, I just don't see people being happy if you know say that goal from Crouch is disallowed by video evidence and then Arsenal go up the other end and score from a corner that shouldn't have been a corner um, then you know Stoke will say well how come our you know our goal was disallowed by video evidence which Arsenal have been able to avail of but we've not been able to avail of for you know, an equally bad decision or poor call. And I just don't ever, I don't think people will ever be happy. And I think it might end up being a slightly slippery slope. It might not. Um, I might be completely wrong. Um, and I'm not like absolutely 100% no, this cannot happen. I just, I think 
quite a lot of thought has to go into this, and I think it is. And people like to give, you know, the likes of FIFA and the FA a hard time for very, very good reason. I actually think on this, they've, um, you know, people are just like, oh, they're they're Luddites and they're stuck in the past. And I don't think they are on this occasion. I think there's an acknowledgement that this is not a really comfortable fit for the sport. Um, and that, you know, this is the most popular sport in the world, probably, Um you know, I, I think that's relatively uncontroversial to say, like as a global. I would, I thing. would say, I would say, if you're going to put something ahead of it, maybe transfer speculation, then football. But it's one <laughs> or the other. Yeah. That 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 comes into soap opera, I think. Got, got um, it. But yeah, so and and you know, you ask yourself why it's popular, and and it is because of you know the flow and the spontaneity and the fact that you can be attacking and then five seconds later you concede a goal or. You can be brilliant and on top, and you can have had seventy percent possession and lose one nil. Um, so I, you know, I I have my doubts. I'm happy to see it trialed, um, and you know, if my doubts evaporate upon trial, fair enough. But um, I'm I'm not I'm not fully bought in, particularly as someone who's regularly inside the stadium, because I think that's that's kind of something that's really un that goes quite unconsidered um, how it can create confusion and how you, you know, basically if every time there's a goal scored and you go a bit mad, but then you think, Oh no, what if in 10 seconds, some guy sitting in a room somewhere chalks the goal off, you know, it, it potentially takes some of that spontaneity away. And I know some people scoff at that argument, but to me personally, that's, that's very, very important. And, um, you know, because it's 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 only meant to be fun at the end of the day. You know, this isn't really life and death stuff. I know people treat it like that, but it's not. Um, and so I, I think personally, we have if, if it takes any of the potential fun away, I think that's something really worth thinking about very, very hard. Well, a few counterpoints to that, just real quick. First of all, I think you have to have your head examined because if you've been following Arsenal home and away for the better part of 20 years and still think it's about fun, uh, I am concerned for you. Um, because it's not fun. Uh, you talked about people not being happy. Uh, again, nobody's happy, and nobody's ever going to be happy. So just to clear that up. I do think I would support video. I mean, in this case, right, look, you've got Crouch running off to celebrate, and the Stoke player celebrating with him, and he's running back to the center circle. Mm. You could have a decision before he makes it back to the center circle. And obviously, yeah, yeah. any technology that reduces the amount of, of time that Peter Crouch can celebrate should be implemented pretty much straight away. Um, But all kidding aside, I think your strongest argument is the argument of if you don't review every decision, then how do you decide the equivalency of, you know, decisions, right? I mean, to your point, their goal gets chalked off. We score one from a dubious decision somewhere else on the pitch that doesn't get chalked off. It could be problematic. But I do think when you have a scenario where within five seconds of something happening, every single person in the world except the referee knows that the decision is wrong, that's troubling. um, And it can be resolved. Mm -hmm. Um, So... You know, I mean, look, goal line, goal line technology was supposed to be all kinds of problematic, and that's been seamlessly integrated, and it improves the sport. So, but I, the the difference with goal line, I mean, first of all, it's it's instant, right? Um, I get it. And, and, it, and, it and it's and it's factual. And it's factual. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. It's not subjective like a lot of the rules are. The other thing I'd say about that, the other point about that is, um, it's been in for three seasons now. It's not been used once in an Arsenal game yet. Right. No, I get, I get it. It's not something decision. that that is routinely implemented and implemented in different no, ways. And, and people would have right. had you believe before it came in that this was happening all the bloody time um, <laughs> because we're always so angry. And um, it actually turns out it's not. It's it's absolutely fine. It's that you know it has improved the game very very marginally because it doesn't come up very often. But yeah, of course it has. But you know, do you know what I mean? People are so offended yeah. and so angry. It's like oh my god this is happening every week and three years and we haven't seen hide nor hair of it at a single arsenal game um so the i don't think these things happen as often as people think they do but yes that's not that in itself is not an excuse to not try and make improvements yeah i mean look if you can improve the game without disrupting it you do it and i guess the question is how do you do that and i think there is an answer for it that incorporates technology a little bit more than it is right now but we don't need to solve that problem right now because as far as i'm aware none of us are on the pgmol or fifa or any of that stuff because we don't have envelopes full of money stuffed under our doors so 
Let's move on, Clive. Um, quick word on Rob Holding. Um, first, just the performance where I thought he had a few wobbles, you know, maybe positionally. We're seeing a little bit of the, the youth and the inexperience, but overall solid enough. And then just on the poetic justice of him breaking Arnautovich in half. Yeah, and we all liked that, didn't we? Uh, Arnautovich yes. has caused us a lot of problems in the past. And on the Holding, yeah, you know what? It's, it really is... He, he he's looked good from almost day one, and um, I did have a look at him in Chambers in the uh, there was an under twenty one tournament last summer. So when we knew we were buying him, they played together centre halves for England under twenty ones, and I felt then he was better than Chambers. He looked taller, stronger, he looked a bit quicker, and uh, and he was meant to be the junior partner, and to me looked like the senior partner. And um, he's come in and done well straight away, and. Every game he's played, I, I feel that the Arsenal fans are desperate for him to do well. They're desperate to shower love onto a, a young English player. And I, and I really feel concerned that, you know, it's only a little while ago we were killing Bellerin. And then last year he he was walking on water. We do have a way of um, building and building them up. We're not the only ones, building them up and then smashing them down. But even within this purple patch of form that he's had and how he's made the fans feel and how he's you know, impact and influence the team. He's had a couple of moments that could have gone wrong and could have, and could have conceded goals and could have caused each situations, which could have maybe coloured people's views. But you can't deny that, you know, a two and a half million pound signing. I mean, what what potential, what potential. I mean, he's got he's got such a bit on the ball. He's got, he's actually, if you look at some of his bolt on YouTube's, He's got a lot of swagger on the ball. There's a lot more in there that he hasn't shown yet that he will show once he feels comfortable. He can really stride out. He's got tricks. He's got turns. And he can play off both feet. He can play both sides. Yeah, there's a lot more to come there. And um, we just got to hold our horses a little bit and um, hope that he gets through the next couple of weeks in good shape. But hopefully he has a good cup final if he does play and come through with his reputation intact because the next couple of years could be very exciting for him. Um, did you see the video on the internet? <laughs> which one? The video on the internet. How do you, know, I don't you, know which one. There's more than, oh yeah, there's lots of videos <laughs> on there. I always forget that. Yeah, sorry. No, not the one where the guy puts his fist up the, or, or the one with the, no, never mind. Um, no, it's, it's, it's a guy, from, <laughs> it's a guy from the stands shouting, um, you're better than stones. And he cracks a little smile, um, after the game, but it. Just, at the moment, he is. Well, we've all forgotten about John Stone. We've all forgotten about Callum Chambers. That's the life of the football fan. Well, we better right? not forget sure. about him because he's going to turn into uh, uh, Maldini and Cannavaro mixed together for, for the game against <laughs> Liverpool next weekend. We're, we're, Tim, we're loving him right now, aren't we? Um, after Alexis scores his, his goal, he points to the Arsenal badge and points to the ground, which some people have, um, I think, interpreted as he's staying. Uh, I think there's also sort of a... a Alexis Rorschach test involved in that, but did you spot that celebration move at the ground? And was anyone talking about it where you were? Uh, no, no. Um, I think we were more looking at him signaling. Um, well, I didn't see that bit because, to be quite honest, um, and I don't usually celebrate goals like this nowadays. I've calmed down a bit in my old age, but uh, my attention was elsewhere, um, aiming my celebrations. Um, At the Stoke fans, yeah. were you given the wanker sign? Yeah, yeah. Flicking V's Quite a lot. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't it doesn't happen often nowadays. But that what what was really nice about this game was that you know obviously it's really nice to beat Stoke away um, in front of all their prick fans. And um, but what was nice about this was that at first we looked like we were kind of coasting to the victory, which don't get me wrong, we've been very nice. But when they got it to two one. And that was that kind of hairy five minutes. And actually the game got quite, um, it got quite feisty. And so, you know, both sets of fans got, got, you know, quite testy with one another. So to finish them off while the atmosphere was quite hot um, was incredibly satisfying. That just, that just made the whole, that just brought it all up a notch for me. But um, no, nobody was talking about that. He points at the ground for all of about half a second. I'm really not reading anything into this and that's he points you know, to the badge, the badge first tim he points to the badge <laughs> <laughs> but i don't know that just strikes me as an adrenaline thing um i think Giroud did it after both of his goals as well it's just well, you know, of course he's of staying like... he's <laughs> 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 if you were him why the fuck would you go anywhere <laughs> 
and you know it, it just feels like with all that adrenaline um one of the things that most players tend to do is either beat their chest or take their shirt off because of you know the the adrenaline um and because they no, have great I bodies really, uh, well of course yeah uh, no I, w- I would i would be expecting to see something far more performative um if alexis was indicating you're staying particularly when we know because the managers told us that the contract talks aren't going to happen until the season's over anyway. So what on earth would have changed, basically? Um, So, no, I'm not reading anything into that at all. I don't think any of us were. Um, And by the time we were all kind of focusing on the Arsenal players again, um, Alexis was kind of looking a bit pained and signalling to the bench and and then came off. So um, it was something one of the guys I went with brought up on the train afterwards, but I think it was because he read it on Twitter. Yeah. Um, quick question for you as well, Tim. Have you seen the video on the internet? The um, the Arnautovic one. No, just just the video on the internet. Um, I've seen lots of videos okay, on the cool. internet. Just checking. Yeah. Probably not what we should go into on this podcast. Hey, don't don't say that. The in laws <laughs> might be listening. Um, so, all right. Well, look. Um, I think the thing that was lost in some of this is is and and you hit on it is the importance of the Alexis goal because it ends four one. I haven't heard it getting talked about as much. The, the, the reaction to it isn't as emphatic, but here's a guy who's signaling to come off, who in a, in a game that has become a tightly contested game, kind of out of nowhere, manages to pull a beautiful goal out of the hat and, and once again just shows his importance to the team. I mean, Clive, that, that moment is a really, really important moment, and if he comes off before that goal is scored, it's not to suggest that we <clears throat> wouldn't go on to win, but you certainly don't like our chances as much with Alexis off the pitch. I mean, that is as much leadership and character. I mean, he gets criticized for throwing these fits on the pitch sometimes and for losing the ball, but that's leadership and character, having a player who's willing to step up when the game is is back on the line, not feeling like he should still be on the pitch, but rise to the moment and score a goal. No, I fell for it, Lazenzinko. As far as I'm concerned, he's staying. But, um, and funny enough, there's a there's a something five live tonight with a Charlie Adams Stoke player, and he actually speaks about Erzan and Sanchez, and he actually says he can speak. You no, know, like you can yeah, understand can the words coming out of his mouth. He can speak. Amazing. I actually saw, I saw the video and heard it. Right. So, um, and he basically says that they're playing like players that want to stay. He says they're not playing like players that want to go. He said you can tell when players want to go. It's just a player's view. There's nothing behind it. But if you're a fan watching it and Tim was there, they didn't look like two players sulking. They didn't like two players and wanted to get out. They're, they look committed. They're, they're playing well. They've reached, you know, they've got a new system. They seem to be playing closer together. Little with less defensive responsibility. They seem to be enjoying it. I'm thinking where else are they going to get paid this sort of money? What's the point of going to have a premiership club? I mean... Uh, you can look at it however you want to look at it. You can look at it with half glass, half empty or half full. I prefer to be a half full guy, but um, I'm hopeful because, in my opinion, as I said earlier, it's the best player in the league. And um, I think he's going to get better. And that's the thing. Even at 28, I think he has a player in stature. His stature has gone up in the last year massively. And sometimes I criticise Wenger for not improving players or not creating a framework for them to improve. But right now, that's a player that's improved. His value's gone up. When he arrived, he was not this player. Now he's seen as a world-class player the world over. And he's done that at Arsenal. Some of that, most of that could be from him. But some of that's done what the major's done for him and how he's liberated him. So um, it's a fair play to him, right? I and he's, he's irreplaceable. So I really do. He, he I don't is, think there's a player is. you can buy that gives you the combination of of the qualities that he has, the things he can do all on his own, also fitting into a team concept, but also having, I mean, first of all, just the fact that he always plays, he's never out, and then the that that desire, I mean, you talk about him not looking like a player who wants to leave, I think he'd look like that if he was playing football on a beach somewhere, I mean, that, that mentality is, is really unique. Yeah, I think, I think we'd really generally miss him if he went, I think... Um, we, uh, we've seen it before. We've seen with Van Persie and Fabregas and Henri. Henri was, we all knew it was going to happen. Vieira, we all knew it was going to happen. Fabregas, maybe a year too soon, but you know what? He was. It, it seemed to make sense. Van Persie, well, it was just poisonous the way he left. But you know what? This guy, he, he's got a lot. He's got a lot. 
He's got a lot of ability, and I think it's going to be hard to replace his assists and goals and work ethic and influence on the team. That's a that's a big time player, and you know I, I hope we could do something. You know I really do. If yep. We don't. It's going to take a. It's going to take a massive signing. It's going to take probably two signings to replace him. We're going to have to get somebody who can play centre forward and left wing. That's what he's doing. Yeah. Look, I mean. In the end, we made the points extra safe, a little icing on the cherry on the top, and, and Giroud finishes off a, a pretty sweeping Arsenal-esque move. And just for a day, it felt like, gosh, our Arsenal is kind of back. We kind of look like Arsenal again. And I think the problem is then Liverpool go and, and tonk West Ham, who look like they're on the beach already. And you just have this, you can't help but have this feeling of regret that we just didn't try to make some adjustments sooner in the season, um, as it does look like we are going to be playing uh, in the furthest reaches of Europe, uh, if that even exists anymore, um, next season. I think there's a lot of ways we can go with this. Tim, real quick, is there a more social media savvy former Arsenal player than Lucas Podolski? No. <laughs> have you seen his his latest trolling, trolling Spurs fans on Twitter? Yes, yes, I have. Yeah. Ha- has um, one player ever done so little in the shirt to uh, achieve so much uh, adulation from the fans? Yeah, he he has a, he has a very smart PR team. <laughs> Given that, um, but that's not really what we need to talk about right now. So I guess, um, well, a couple of things just quickly. Any hope at all for Burrow to do the do the job on the final day? A little bit, a little bit, not not much. I I think it's unlikely, but it wouldn't enormously surprise me. Not enormously, because this is exactly the sort of team that. Liverpool have had trouble with, um, particularly at Anfield this season. I, th- I think the thing is, actually, Liverpool made a little tweak to their formation on Sunday. I really thought they were going to drop points against West Ham. I remember you saying I really that. Thought, yeah, I really, really thought that if we put that pressure on them, that they looked like they'd been feeling the pressure in recent weeks. But, you know, Klopp reached for a bit of a change. He, he played a diamond. He played Coutinho much deeper. Um, and because the basically they were trying to play a formation that needs Sadio Mane and Mane's not been there. So they've been relying on individual kind of bits of magic. But I think that kind of tweak against West Ham might just be enough to get them over the line. But, it, you know, it, it depends how much um, how much the nerves come into it. And a lot of it also depends on how much Middlesbrough are going to put into it, and you can't be too hopeful on that really because they've, you know, they've not. There's no sign from Middlesbrough that they're going to go there and really, really put up a fight. Um, no. So it's it's not, and you know, we've got to do our business as well. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility. I'd probably give it like a, I don't know, maybe five, ten percent, ten percent chance, maybe. Um, of it happening so I've not entirely given up on the idea but yeah I think it's really unlikely I think we've we've just run out of games um, really to be honest if there are another two or three then um, then maybe we'd do it but uh, yeah I think we've just we Liverpool gonna just about have enough to get over the line unfortunately it's starting to look really really stupid that we lost at home to Watford um yeah. <laughs> uh, I think there's a lot of games we can think of like that well, yeah, getting dominated Losing by Palace Liverpool. didn't help. <laughs> Losing to Liverpool if, on the opening day in particular was bad. Yeah. Leading two nil, was it? Yeah. If if that's if that's a draw, even you know, it's good I, enough. I know it's Maybe what, it's what both, if, both but, Liverpool games. Both Liverpool yeah. games. We we weren't prepared for the first one, and we had our dressing room meltdown before the second one. Right, we lose home and away to Liverpool. Yeah. You ask yourself, do we deserve to finish above them? I'm not sure we do. I, I think it's interesting because if you look at it, basically we get 1.9 points per game in the Premier League every season. That's basically what Arsene Wenger achieves. And as terrible as this season has been, it looks like we're going to do almost exactly that again. Arsene's problem isn't that he's getting worse. It's that he just can't seem to pull a, a positive variance season out of the hat, if you see what I'm saying, right? Like, he's set a great floor, and he's hit that floor every season, but the problem is his ceiling is his floor. <laughs> you know, he's just tremendously consistent. Um, and consistent. I think, Go ahead. Yep. No, I was going to say something needs to change, right? So uh, I'm not just. I know it sounds obvious, but uh, with you know the potential of the Europa League, I'm hoping we just 
give that competition up and just have a Europe free season. And so you can focus on collating points in the Premier League because it's been about five out of the last six seasons we've not really started a season on time. We don't do our transfer bids on time. We don't treat points in August or September at the same weight as we do in November or December. But points are the same, right? And we don't accumulate them professionally. So we always have our emotional meltdown after Champions League's exit. It takes us four or five games to come back, and then we have a strong run. This time it took too long to come back to our emotional state, and it's going to cost us. And it's going to cost us a lot of money, and it's going to cost us a lot or sporting ambition and prestige. And yeah, we and need to look at ourselves. potentially player recruitment. I mean, we don't know that for sure, but potentially. And he come, he, well, listen to the, um, the press conference today and he said it's not crucial. I mean, he can't really say anything else, but it's not the big weight that it used to be on the financial side of things. But yeah, I find it pretty embarrassing that um, we can't we can't even get a point at home to Watford. And yes, every team loses games and we're no different. But you know, the, the, the gap between Southampton away and Watford at home, that's mismanagement. First game of the season, that, a bit unlucky with some injury, but we weren't ready for it. We weren't fit, we weren't ready. And then, the, wherever happened at Anfield away, we're never too sure. But we've gone into that game with a, with a defeatist attitude and, and completely messed it up. So you get what you deserve in life, right? And we don't deserve it this year. We really don't. And um, I'm hopeful, but I don't think we deserve it. And if we don't get it, we hopefully learn a lesson from it. And, and I don't want to use the phrase, but I'm hoping it's a catalyst for change. Oh, boy. There it is. <laughs> There's the title of the podcast. Um, <laughs> last question for you guys. Tim, I'll let you first crack at it. Favorite uh, uh, White Hart Lane memory not winning the title there? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, believe it or not, I've not actually seen us win there that many times in the last oh, yeah. 15 years or so. We've not actually won there very often. So I'm going to go with a game I actually wasn't at, um, but it was the beginning of the 93-94 season. Um, it was on a Monday night, so I watched it on TV. And uh, we beat them 1-0 at White Hart Lane with an Ian Wright header in the 88th minute. And Ian Wright ran the length of the pitch to go and celebrate with the Arsenal fans. And um, because I remember, you know, my my first North London derby memory is the 1991 semi-final. And that was incredibly painful. Um, Fortunately, I was at the 93 semi-final, which we won, which felt a little bit like redemption. But... It, it, yep. that 91 semi-final defeat left me with some scars so in August 93 I was still you know I was still full of um, full of thoughts of revenge uh, and that, that did it quite nicely uh, other than that I'd say Thomas Rosicki's goal a couple of seasons I, I think the last time we won there actually in the league um, that Thomas Rosicki volley into the top corner because um, fantastic goal won the game and a player I absolutely loved, and uh, and I, I feel there's a, a real sense of tragedy that his career, his Arsenal career, panned out the way it did. But but his ability to score against Tottenham ensures he'll be remembered. Um, you know, still maybe not as much as as, as he could have been. But uh, yeah, that was a peach. That was probably my favourite goal we've scored there. How about eliminating you, the Adebayor volley because I don't like him anymore. So fair enough. How, how about you, Clive? <laughs> Yeah, I'm a little bit older than Tim, so I've got my memories go back quite a long way. And um, but I yeah, that was usually I mean, when your memories stopped going back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes back quite a long way, and there's been loads of there's been absolutely loads of games that we've won there. But a couple stand out for me. But one game I was at the time when a car new flicked it over Luke Young's head, ran around the other side, and just volleyed it in. And I was sitting on the Tottenham shelf with my brother that day, and um. It was really interesting when he validated everyone just got up and left. So that was that was a uh, that was nice. But also um, the times when Vieira strode through the middle of their pitch in the five four. Is it the five four? And Pirès scored the shuffle yeah, feet. Yeah. And, uh, and th- that game, I mean, it was just incredible. You know that game. You know when you go to Tottenham, you take your life into your hands, right? So you always feels extra special there because you feel as though. One, you got to get out of it. You'd get out of there in one piece, and that's been the situation for about twenty odd years. And two, when you do win there, it really hurts them. It really hurts them. So those two games stand out to me for my for my live appearances. But obviously, going back a bit further, when David Rocastle scored in the in the League Cup semi, that was a that was a very special moment. Um, did you hear what the United supporters were chanting? 
Yeah, that's a song they they usually aim at Liverpool fans for that season. They had a couple of years ago where they they blew it at the death. What is it? Congratulations, you nearly won the league. You nearly won the league, yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, I got to say, one of my favorite White Hart Lane memories just has to be that Spurs fan going mental in the stadium with the rest of them when it was 1-1 at Newcastle, except it wasn't 1-1 at Newcastle. (laughs) That was brilliant. How about Tim Sherwood inviting a fan to be coached? Just the whole Tim Sherwood era. Um, turning them just into a banter team even more than usual. There, there's, a, there's a lot of them, but uh, a, a ground that I know, Tim, you in particular, will be happy to see the back of. Mm. Yeah. No more <laughs> well, I don't, no. I, I'm not expecting a new one to be any better in that respect. Maybe not. Still going to still, still be that same walk to Seven Sisters, Tim. It's the yeah. same walk. Ma- ma- right? exactly. so Maybe they'll go into administration there. before it ever gets finished. Come on, you guys. There's, <laughs> where there's a will, there's a way. To dare is to do. Um, okay, let's wrap it up. Tim's on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. Pleasure. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Uh, we expect Paul to be back at some point in the future. I just don't think he could bear to come on a podcast where he had to say nice things about Francis Cochran. He hates that guy. Um, <laughs> my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Uh, or potentially after the Sunderland game, you could probably block me on Twitter at Middlesbrough Gunner. We'll see. Because um, we're all Middlesbrough fans now. It's crazy what football can do to you. Uh, We'll be back after the midweek game, which is probably the day you are listening to this. So you better get up early and listen to this podcast before it becomes totally irrelevant. We devoted an hour of our life to it. Come on, people. Help us out here. We'll talk to you soon, and uh, maybe we can get Tim's uh, thoughts on traveling to the furthest reaches of Europe. All that and more on the next edition of the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. Talk to you then. 